0: Father, we have uh, studied and we've prepared musically and uh, in teaching. Uh, children are being held. Doors are being opened. Lord, masks have been handed out. The building's been cleaned. Uh, officers are providing safety in the parking lot. So much preparation, yet, Lord, it's all nothing has no value, no power, unless the Holy Spirit, the life of God, flows through this place like water, like a flood. God, I told you last night, I'll tell you now, I have things in my life that I cannot will power out. Things that bug me and things that befall me, things that cause me to stumble. I need a flood of power. I don't need willpower. I need this power of the Spirit like water. Life-giving water to float through my heart. And I, Lord, I know I pray for everyone here. They don't want to be bound by the things that have taken them down all their life. There's got to be more victory. We know that, Lord, it's infinite victory. There's endless supply of the Holy Spirit. So come, Holy Spirit, do a brand new thing in our life, a brand new thing in our church and city, a brand new thing among the church planters in India and around the world that we support, a brand new display of the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what we ask for for Christmas. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Tim Challies is a blogger, a book reviewer, and a prolific author in his own right. He's a help to many pastors like me. And on Wednesday morning after the presidential election, he posted a blog that caused me to all of a sudden forget about everything that was happening nationally and globally. This is how the, the blog began. In all the years I've been writing, I've never had to type words more difficult, more devastating than these. Yesterday, the Lord called my son to himself, my dear son, my sweet son, my kind son, my godly son, my only son. <clears throat> Nick Challies was 20 years old, uh, was playing in a field with his uh, fiance and his sister, and he collapsed, never regained consciousness. He was a student at Boyce College and um, Southern Seminary and was studying to be a pastor And longed to return to Canada where he'd grown up to be a church planter. His father spoke briefly at the funeral in Toronto just last week. And uh, I would have understood if he had not said anything. But because he chose to speak, I found it something I wanted to hear very much. And this is, it's a long quote, well worth it. This is Tim Challey's about his son's death. Human beings of all creatures in the world have this awareness that we will cease to be. But we often live in a denial of that fact. And even when we can bring ourselves to admit that death is real, we tend to live as if it's far off. Something we can think about someday, but certainly not this day. But reality somehow has its way of forcing a reckoning. A funeral is one of those times. It's a stark reminder that death is real. That eventually death comes to each one of us and that That's especially true when the funeral is that of a young man. So we can't help but wonder if Nick's final gift to each one of us is simply confronting us one more time with the reality that we prefer to avoid, a reality that poses us with the question, am I ready? Some of you probably could, could be asking a question, why another message on death since I preached on that last week from 2 Corinthians 5? My response to you would be this. 150,000 people will die around the world today. Most of whom are not ready to meet Christ. Or to make it even more personal, I received an email this week from campus workers uh, on one of our college campuses that Hope Point supports in Virginia. And they're ministering to international students, Chinese students, and Some parents of a 20-month-old baby girl said goodbye to her recently. She died of leukemia. And the only question they wanted to know was, where's our daughter now, and is she alone? And I'm so grateful because of your faithful giving to missions. We had somebody to walk with them through grief. What would you have said to that couple? Are you equipped to handle the greatest questions in life about Life and death. Death's always going to bring us great sorrow, but it doesn't have to bring us great fear. Last week we looked began looking at a passage in 2 Corinthians 5 about the hope for the believer after he dies. And I want to say something before we look at part two of 2 Corinthians 5. I want to say, <clears throat> I don't have any great preconceived notions now or whenever I speak at a funeral that my words are going to remove sorrow. That's never the purpose of a preacher or the scripture. We don't remove sorrow. We just add comfort in the midst of sorrow. Sorrow. God's promises about life after death, or sort of, sort of like I compare them to a mother whose child falls off their bike and skins their knee. Nothing can speed up the healing, but a mother can take a warm bath cloth and say, here, this will help. That's what the promises of Scripture are intended to do. It's God saying, here, this will help. Now, last week we looked at 2 Corinthians 5, and the first point in that passage was, death brings us from vulnerability to unshakable security. Who wouldn't want that? And we based it on 2 Corinthians 5, verse 1. For we know, not guess, not hope, not wish, for we know that if the earthly tent, our body, we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not made by God human hands. So here, God compares this body to a tent to try to strike the image of vulnerability. Anything can knock it down comparing that with the body that we're going to be given. It will not be biologically made at all, strictly by the supernatural power of God and therefore it has unshakable strength. When I was about 10 years old, my brother and I along with my mom and my dad, went camping in Myrtle Beach. Dad was incredibly busy during those years with work, so he drove the trailer down to the the, the campground, and we unloaded everything, and mom and dad were going to stay in the camper, and my brother and I were going to stay in a tent that week, and so dad set up the tent, but he had to go back to finish up a few days at work. Well, that night, an unbelievable fierce storm Uh, blew through that um, campground and our tent didn't last 15 minutes. And soon my brother and I found ourselves homeless and we knocked on the door of mom's camper and spent the night, a few nights there. So the point of the story is that when our tent-like body is blown away, God has a camper for you to live in for all of eternity. The truth is a little bit larger than that. Don't live in a tent-like body anymore. We live in a body that will never be destroyed again. A body of unshakable security. Micah spoke of this. Eternal security. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established. People will stream to that mountain. Many nations will come. Nation will not take up sword against nation. No more fighting. It's unbelievable to think about all the conflicts in the world now. None. Everyone will sit under their own vine and under their own fig tree. And no one will make them afraid. George Washington's favorite verse. And you could imagine if you know anything about history. All the wars and the death that he saw. I think if there's any word that would sum up 2020. It would be the word fear. Fear of health. Fear of jobs, fear of violence, and for the people who live on the West Coast, the fear of nature, and for every nation in the world, the fear of death. And to be honest with you, it would be inappropriate to live through 2020 and to have not experienced fear. It's an appropriate emotion, doesn't have to be a paralyzing emotion, and one day, Because of God's gift of life after death, it will be a non-existent emotion. God said, we saw last week, Isaiah 25, the sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. So that's a summary of last week. We're going to a place of unshakable security. Point number two from 2 Corinthians 5 this week. Death makes possible the fulfillment of God's ultimate purpose for each of us. Verse 5, 2 Corinthians 5. Now the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose, to live forever. The one who has fashioned us for the purpose of living forever in another body. Not a tent-like body, but a building-like body. The one who has fashioned us for living in that body is God. So here we see The will of God was to never live forever in a tent-like body. Everything that God said in the Old Testament is supposed to be a picture of the fulfillment of the New Testament. Has it ever dawned on you why the Israelites lived in tents? For 40 years in the wilderness, when their land they were going to was only 17 days away. 17 days away, they lived in tent for 40 years. Because of the metaphor of the image of, of what we're all doing on earth, living in tents, Canaan. They were just passing through the wilderness. It was not home. And that's why God had them live in tents for 40 years to make a statement. We're passing through. This is not home. You ever see anybody that's living on the streets in a tent the first thing that comes to your mind about that person is they don't have a home. This is what God wants us to think about spiritually. This is not home. He has designed us. His purpose is not to live here, but to live forever in a supernatural body. And death helps us get there. You're going to get there one way or another. But even Adam, the tent like body that he possessed was never going to be the final <clears throat> dwelling place for him or Eve. Most of my teenage years, I watched my dad was a master gardener, sort of self-trained, but our, our yard was filled with hundreds of azaleas. And I watched my dad over and over again, uh, just cut off branches and root them in small little pots to turn into what would be a future azalea. And he just was magical at it. And then when the time was right, he would take it to that pot, out of that pot, and plant it in the ground. It was never the intention of my dad for that little rooted azalea to stay in that pot. He was always thinking, I'm going to plant it In a much larger container in the yard. So God was never in his mind that, even before the fall, that this would be our final body. What is God's will for us? Perfect souls, living in perfect bodies, in a perfect kingdom, perfectly enjoying God. Sounds like a perfect plan to me. So how serious is God in getting us there? Well, let's read the whole verse again. Now the one who has designed us for this very purpose, that body, has given us the Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. If you attend a New Testament church, you're going to hear the word gospel a lot. We preach the gospel. What is the gospel? Here's the gospel. God loves the world. The world is sinful. God sent his son to come in the world to bring forgiveness to sinners. The Holy Spirit entered the womb of a woman named Mary. She gave birth to a son named Jesus. He was a miracle working teacher who perfectly lived out everything that he ever taught. He developed enemies along the way who tried to silence him by nailing him to the cross. During the six hours that he was on the cross, God took all of the sins that have been a part of your life and placed them on the body of his son so that your guilt would be removed. Three days after Jesus died, he rose from the dead and 40 days later ascended to heaven, at which time... He gave the Holy Spirit to indwell the body of every believer, to strengthen them, to give them peace, and as a promise that he's coming back to bring them to heaven. That's the gospel. This is what Paul is talking about, the latter part of the gospel. The Holy Spirit sent from heaven is a promise, a deposit that he is coming back. Let's say you bought a house for $200,000, and the bank said, as a deposit, we're going to require 20% down payment. So you come up with $40,000. You give the bank. Now, I want to ask you, how serious are you about paying off your house? You just gave $40,000. As a down payment, I would think you're very serious about buying that house. So when God placed his Holy Spirit in your body, he's very serious about finishing up the work that he started in you and bringing you home. All of my life, I've heard people say, if this was all there is of God, just enjoying him through these songs and enjoying Him peace, His peace now, it would be enough. Totally unbiblical. Be careful about being more biblical than the Bible. <laughs> it's not enough if it's just here. Paul said that in 1 Corinthians 15:19. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. People who say it would be enough just to enjoy 30, 40, 50, or 60 years of peace with God and forgiveness, it would be enough. They don't understand the price of the down payment to bring the Holy Spirit into your life, which is the blood of Christ. He began a good work and you will perfect it until the coming of Christ. With God, there are no unfinished building projects. You didn't come this far only to come this far. God doesn't leave wounded soldiers on the battlefield. The Spirit is a guarantee that He is coming back. Well, all of this talk about life after death, coming back for this body should have caused you in the past two weeks to have raised the question, you're probably ahead of me on that. Okay, we know what's happening later. What happens now with this body between death now and resurrection? Well, Paul knew you were going to ask that, so he answers that question. Two-part answer, be patient, please. Therefore, we're always confident and know, this is another thing that we know, as long as we are at home in this body, not having died, we are away from the Lord. So if I'm in this body, I cannot see God. I cannot enjoy God face to face. So from what I can look out now, this verse pretty much applies to everyone here. You look very earthbound to me very body bound right now. So you are away from the Lord. You don't know what he looks like. Never heard his voice. And Paul says, but there's something much greater to look forward to is found in verse 8. We would prefer, rather than this, we would prefer to be away from the body so we could be at home with the Lord. So if you died, you're not with your body, you do see him face to face. Tim Challies, again, this is a combination of, a few, of several blogs that he wrote after his son's death. I'll combine them for this quote We're confident Nick has not been sent away, but merely sent on ahead. We know there will be grueling days and sleepless nights ahead. But for now, even though our minds are bewildered and our hearts are broken, our hope is fixed and our faith is holding, our son is home. Which is exactly what Paul said, at home. Death brings us home with the Lord. Maybe the best word I know for death home, especially for those of us who grew up in great homes. We can't think of anything more exciting than the joy that we've experienced on on this earth to be multiplied 10 million times in his home. And for those such as the homeless population that I mentioned earlier, for those who have come to Christ even on the streets This is what eternity will be like for them. For the first time in their life, they're going to have a home 10 million times greater than any joy of any earthly home. Now, the period of time between us dying and receiving our resurrection body, theologians call this the intermediate state. We are at home with the Lord but our bodies are in the ground. So what happens during this intermediate state where our, we're home, bodies in the ground? What happens in this intermediate time? Some of you would be asking this question. Why is there an intermediate state? You probably have already asked that all your life. You go to funerals, you hear the preacher say, Watch, bury the body, yet at home with the Lord. Body in the ground, soul at home with the Lord. Why an intermediate state? Well, there probably are several reasons that would fall in the category of mystery, but there's one that's quite clear, and that is from an evangelistic standpoint, Whenever, for 34 years now as a pastor, walking with families into cemeteries, as I'm standing with that family, grieving and watching their grief, my eyes always gaze across the acres and acres of that cemetery. And I smile because I'm reminded every time I'm in a a cemetery, what man that claim to be the answer and Savior of the world, what man is the Savior? The one who's not in the grave. So God leaves all the bodies of believers of thousands of years in the grave so that we'll not be confused when somebody says, I am the way to heaven. The only one who can say that and give you confidence is the one whose body is not in the ground. That would be a reason for the intermediate state, so that all bodies will be left in the ground so that we'll know Christ is the way to heaven. So we're comforted by that. Jesus conquered the grave and therefore we will conquer the grave also if we believe in him and can say with Paul, we prefer to be away from the body And at home with the Lord. Now I love how Paul ends this very specifically. He doesn't just say we're home. It wouldn't be much of a home if we weren't with the Lord. What a gift it is to be able to see our loved ones. But heaven wouldn't be heaven if we're there without the Lord. So we are at home. But we are there also with the Lord. So, here's a question about the intermediate state. What do believers look like right now in the intermediate state? Bodies in the ground, they're at home with the Lord. What do they look like? Well, the Bible doesn't tell us a lot about that, but it does tell us a few things. Let me just Help you get used to this. When there are things that are not told to you in the Bible, it's because God says you don't need to know them to enjoy Him. Now, when I was in college, I read a verse in Revelation that said we are getting a new name. Every believer gets a new name in heaven. That just puzzled me so much that when I got home from college, I went and made an appointment with my pastor. I said, Dr. Page... What does it mean that we get a new name in heaven? And he told me, frankly, I don't know. But if he'll just let me in, I don't care what he calls me. I love that kind of wisdom. We don't have to know everything. But there are some things that we know. The first thing we can know, if you could peek into heaven today, you would recognize exactly the people that you've always known. I don't say that because I want that to be true. It is true. Your knowledge of them is even better than the knowledge you had on earth. Toward the end of Jesus' life, God, in order to affirm him before he was going to the cross, came down on a mountain in a very beautiful display of radiant glory from heaven. The glory of God descended, two prophets also descended on that mountain, Moses and Elijah. They had been dead for hundreds of years. With Jesus on that mountain were three disciples, Peter, James, and John. Look what Peter says when the prophets came. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I'll put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Immediately knew who they were, recognized them. Our knowledge of those that we love is even better in heaven. Another glimpse of those that have gone on before is provided for us in Hebrews 11. As you know, Hebrews 11 describes all of the great people of faith in the Old Testament. And at the end of that chapter, it gives us a glimpse of what all the Old Testament believers are doing in heaven right now. Hebrews eleven twenty two. but you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits. Here they are. Not to the bodies, but to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. To Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkling of his blood. All I can say is, we don't know a lot about what heaven is like right now, other than it oozes with joy, power, God, Jesus. It's a party. I've heard in so much of my life, we often say, People say this sort of flippantly, or they try to make themselves believe it. We know that if the one person, if the person that we loved, if they had an opportunity to come back, they wouldn't. You don't know how true that is. Because of the high joy they're experiencing with God and Christ and thousands and thousands of angels. And I will say this even though the grieving heart will never fully be healed on earth, only in heaven, one of the paths toward healing is to let the joy of the person that you love in heaven be your joy now. Let their joy bring you joy. So all of this, the spirits of those who've been made righteous, made perfect, That happens to everybody who dies immediately upon their death. How do we know that? Because the one of the most tender things that Jesus ever said in his life, he's hanging on the cross to his right and to his left are two criminals. One criminal mocks him. The The other criminal realizes he's the son of God, the savior of the world. And so that criminal says to Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. Now, what's he thinking? Hundreds of years, thousands of years, whenever the kingdom happens, please, Jesus, someday remember me, please. And Jesus tells him, not someday, truly I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. So again, back to 2 Corinthians 5, we're not just at home, but we are with the Lord in paradise. And Paul said, we would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Now, let me say in complete empathy, none of us look forward to the dying process. Mark Twain used to say, I'm not afraid to die. I just don't want to be there when it happens. (laughs) And I appreciate his humor because it's really filled with insight We have no idea. It's the last step of faith a believer ever takes. What's it going to be like? And this is the only thing I can tell you. The one who said, today you'll be with me in paradise, also said, never will I leave you nor forsake you. In that last step of faith, the presence of Jesus Christ is going to walk with you through death as he's walked with you through every step of faith you've ever taken in life can read about that in Acts chapter 7, but that's for another day. Today's emphasis at home with the Lord. All you need to know about death is that during the biggest transition of your life, you will be with the most loving person in the universe. And because of that, Paul said, I prefer death over life. Why would he say, I prefer death over life? Because any sane person desires more joy versus less joy. Any sane person would say, You have more joy today or less joy? I'll take more joy. That's what he told the Philippian church. For me to live as Christ, I love serving Jesus. Nothing thrills me more than serving Jesus preaching Christ, singing Jesus, giving to Jesus, digging water wells for Jesus, clinics and orphanages for Jesus. I love serving him. But to die is what? Better. And that produced for Paul an eagerness about death. Those of us who've pastored during this pandemic, Have had all sorts of questions and opinions provided. What is the best policy that we should do during this time? During a time of global uh, illness. And uh, obviously I've read, I've had a lot of opinions given to me. I've read a lot. One of my most enjoyable was a pastor who was asked, When they begin to regather, said, you're leading your church to regather without all questions answered. What if someone dies in your church? And the pastor simply said, then they will be happier. That's straight out of Philippians 121. When we die, we'll be happier. Believing that can take you a long way Down the road if you're ever considering a life of missions. What if the worst thing that could happen to you happens on the mission field? What if the worst thing that could happen to you in life? Death happens to you while you're overseas. Then you are happier. I don't know if I sold you on that. I don't know if we believe that better. I'm concerned that we're raising an entire generation of children who are more scared of death now than they were 10 years ago. Less likely to go to serve the Lord overseas because of the fear of dying that has been created in 2020. A missionary wrote me this week and said, thank you for preaching on death. I have been plagued by the fear of death all my life and have said no to some of Christ's commands overseas for fear of dying. In the Middle, Middle, medieval ages, Europe was stricken with many plagues. Many plagues, just like what we're going through, except for the fact the average mortality rate, the average death rate in a city, death rate, if you got the virus, the average death rate was 25%, one out of four. Death rate, not sick rate. 25% death rate. So there was much confusion about what to do as church. They were just as confused then as we are now. And a matter of fact, if you if you want to read about the history of how the church ministered during the plagues of the Middle, Middle Ages, this will be on our website on the sermon notes. You can download this PDF. It is an outstanding, brief history of how the church ministered to the plagues. This is what they all agreed on. Keep preaching. Minister to the sick. Don't abandon them. Employers, try to provide business so that your employees don't go hungry. In in 1519, Ulrich Zwingli, pastor of a church in in Zurich, Switzerland, was away from his, his city when the plague struck. He was away from the city. What did he do? The article said he rushed back into the city faster than a fireman would rush to a fire to be with his people. He became ill when the plague came into his own body. Thought he was going to die. On his bed of sickness, He, he did live. On his bed of sickness, wrote the plague hymn. How about a plague hymn? This is just a few lines from it. Help me, Lord, my strength and rock. Lo at the door, I hear death's knock. Lo Satan strains to snatch his prey. I feel His grasp. Must I give way. He harms me not, I fear no loss, for here I lie beneath thy cross. My God, my Lord, healed by thy hand upon the earth once more. I stand. How do you minister in a plague-stricken body to a plague-stricken city? you believe? Philippians 1, for me to live is Christ, but to die is better. Paul knew there would be far more enjoyment of Christ when he died. I prefer to be away from the body and with the Lord. So let me close with this. We prefer to be away from this body. Believers, we prefer to be with the sovereign father who decided that we would exist. We prefer to be with Christ who so loved us that he bled for our forgiveness. We prefer to be with the spirit who breathed life into the first man and has indwelled every believer for 6,000 years. What could be better than to live forever with God, whose love is infinitely tender, whose beauty is infinitely satisfying, and whose arms are infinitely safe? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for all those last night around the world who left the chains of the imprisonment of their bodies. They have served you. They have prayed for you. They have toiled for you. And Lord, for many of them, not much earthly comfort, not a great hospital, not a lot of medicine, maybe a bed, but they were faithful until they breathed their last. And then you, Jesus, walked with them through the dying process to join thousands and thousands of angels in joyful assembly where they now have seen God and certainly have held the hand that was crucified for them. We have never been more grateful, Lord, in a volatile world that's increasing in danger to thank you, Jesus, for going to the cross rising from the dead, giving your Holy Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing that we will arrive in heaven safely and eternally. I pray, Lord, for someone today that has never said yes to Christ. They would think about their death. If they would think about your death, Jesus on the cross and your resurrection and say yes to you, they want to be ready I pray someone, Lord, right now will say, Jesus, save me. I give you my hand. I give you my heart. Save me. Take away my sin. Give me your goodness. Flood me with your spirit. Save me. And again, Lord, for all those who are with you, eternally safe and secure in the unshakable kingdom of heaven, we just say, Jesus, thank you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.